we're starting to now that we're coming out of the pandemic school side church side we're starting to like starting to hum again and it's been it's been pretty exciting you know when you build up all that energy when you can't do anything i think that has now that you can release that energy is really starting to i think that's part of it too um so it's been pretty neat it was a neat graduation too we had a couple of members that were there that said it was the uh, either on school board or whatever said it was like their first graduation they've ever been to that wasn't a public school graduation that's high school graduation and she said it was amazing because the students are talking about god i was the commencement speaker and i talked about the gospel um mrs krause our principal was very much about that this is a god thing pastor dinger gave an invocation in a prayer i mean just hearing that and it was like from beginning to end it was very clear you know what i'm saying was it recorded uh it's online yeah if you go to our church website okay. it should be posted by now um, I read my dad this, this, this is, and again, this is not a humble brag. This is, I think I was, you know, led to say this. I'm going to show you this. This is first, I just want to give you an example of what I said, right? Okay. Since you're all friends and you know yes. me pretty well. Um, and just to kind of give you an idea, I'm just going to pull it off my phone. My, my printed speech that's still in the folder with all the other stuff that we had with the black binder. But I was able to say this. So this is what I said to the students. My theme was to pursue the good, the true, and the beautiful. So we talked about the proper role of government in class all year. In the proper role of government, there's two things. It was to restrain and punish evil, right? That's one role of government. And the other is to promote the good, the true, and the beautiful. And so I talked about those things, but then I said more than those things, this is what we. I hope you remember. I said that before you were born, before you ever walked through a hallway at Grace, before you ever blessed us with your presence, the creator of the universe knew your name and counted you so valuable in his sight that he went to the cross for your sake 2,000 years ago and defeated sin, death, and the forces of evil. You have a savior who finds you so valuable and of such great worth that he was willing to face the full weight of the darkness and brokenness of this world for you. So regardless of how your life unfolds, regardless of your successes and failures, because you're gonna have both, regardless of how you may feel from moment to moment because of Christ's death, life, and resurrection, by faith in him, you will win, class of 2021, and triumph in the end. By being in Christ, you have already won. So when you feel uncertain and everything in your life seems to be changing, remember that you have a Savior that never changes and an inheritance that is secure and can never be taken away from you. Remember this before anything else, because in the end, nothing is more important. And then I had like a little closing, but I can say stuff like that. Yeah. And there's a there's a freedom there that we can speak honestly. And it was cool because with our small class there, the salutatorian, definite Christian. She was kind of like one of my minions. You know, she's <laughs> she's like a she's like a surrogate niece, basically. She wants to be me. And then the valedictorian is a kid that, I don't know if you know, his mom's in the church. And I mean, his mom's uh, Crystal Iverson, his grandma, and I can't remember her first name, is in the church. He uh, struggled through migraines all four years. Um, he would miss weeks at a time and somehow pulled off a 3.9. Wow. An amazing student. I mean, this is the sort of kid he could miss two weeks of class, come and take the same test and pat and just nail the test. I don't know how he did that. It wasn't like he was cheating. We all, we all proctored the test. So he was clearly got, he had something going on at home where he could rigorous, but I mean, it would take him out for weeks and he tried everything. They put the little earring things in the inner eardrum. He got blue light blocking glasses. He got, um, I mean, I'm telling you that kid got everything. And still somehow he's getting scholarships and everything. It's an amazing story. So, and very, very much a man of faith. And so it was kind of cool to see that. So to have young people get up, I think it was pretty neat for people to see that. So it was a success. It was a good day. Last year was a great day too, because it was our first graduation. But I'll be honest, last year there was also about three or four of them. And I was like, yay. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, this one was actually truly just, it was just joyful for everybody. You know, that sort of thing. Last year was one of those, yes, we, we made it. You know, it was almost like a relief. This one actually was a little bit more meaningful, I think. And um, 
and, and that sort of thing. So it's kind of neat. Every class has its own personality, right? And uh, yeah, there's a little of that. So today's uh, topics, now that everybody's kind of here, at least mostly everybody's here, um, I want to look at Isaiah 45, 54 and 55, but in particular, um, 55. So I want to give you some highlights, because just to review where we were, in Isaiah 52 and 53, we covered the suffering servant, which is sometimes called the forbidden chapter, right, in, in Jewish circles, because it seems to so point so eloquently to Christ. Uh, and we went through, and if you remember, I made a whole list on my board, right, of all the features of the suffering servant. And so it becomes, and the suffering servant somehow is buried with the rich, and then yet he's still counted among the living, right? We have a death and resurrection. Okay, right. So that's how it ends in 53. In 54, there's this, an, another song. And there's lots of songs in Isaiah, especially these last several chapters. And this song is very, very much in that great reversal theme. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. It's more poetic than it is theological. And I just want to look through this. So this is Isaiah 54, and I'm not going to say a whole lot on this. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. So cultural moment, right? Children are a great blessing of God. If you were barren, it was considered a curse. If you were barren and didn't have kids, God's not showing you favor or there's something wrong with you. You're dishonored. Something's wrong, right? And so the idea that the people who uh, you least expect are supposed to be singing songs because there's so many babies. It's kind of a strange image for us in 2021, but it's the great reversal theme again about how things have changed. And it's right after the servant song. So this is how you're supposed to act because of the servant of God. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. In other words, there's, the people of God are so many that you have to build bigger tents. Okay, that's it's, it's an image of growth. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. And this is key why he's using these childbirth and marriage themes. Look at, listen to what he says. This is God talking. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. This is probably a reference to the kinsman redeemer that we see with like Ruth and Boaz, if you're familiar with that story. So the Lord has redeemed Ruth. He's redeemed all his people. So we've got the redeemer theme through this. And this is a big theme throughout all scripture, that idea that marriage is symbolic of God and his people, right? The bride of Christ, that becomes a theme in Paul. And he uses it to say that this is mysterious. You know, this is a mystery, but I speak of Christ and his church. It's in Ephesians. And so there's all these connections throughout the Old and New Testaments where the marriage covenant and the union of man and wife is connected to God and his people. It's, and, and it shows you the level of intimacy, but how seriously God takes that covenant. So when God says he's a jealous God, think about what that means. That's good jealousy, right? That sort of thing. So now God is our husband, and we would say as the church, the church is the bride of Christ. For the God has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah would never go more over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. 
it's significant again i just want to emphasize that he's talking this way after describing the suffering servant probably not an accident that this chapter immediately follows yeah there was a, there was temporary wrath yeah there was law yeah you were convicted yeah you guys screwed up but now look what i've done and now you can rejoice right because i've sent this this peace for you oh afflicted one storm tossed and not comforted behold i will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. What does that sound like to you if you know the whole Bible? Sound like the New Jerusalem, right? We have all the gems and all the gates made out of carbuncle? pearl. Yeah, carbuncles. That's uh, the only carbuncle I'm familiar with is a, a super bad medical condition. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a Hebrew thing. That's it's an idiom that we don't really quite have. In other words, it's something that we have difficulty in translation. If you look at your study Bibles, anybody have your study Bibles with you? It says sapphires, wall of precious stones. It's a mineral used by jewelers and master masons to garnish stones. Sometimes it's also a word used for mascara or eye paint. So all of these sort of words, rubies or crystals, they're not quite sure what they mean. The word carbuncle is just an English translation. So when you say carbuncle, it sounds like a skin condition or something, right? No, carbuncle is a super bad uh... Oil. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So for here, it's like crystal. So it's like kind of a, so again, it's, it's a difficult word to translate. It's in other words, so even the study Bible doesn't have an exact translation of that one. Yeah, I know. I'm sure it doesn't. What does yours have? What does yours say? It says rubies and crystal. Smooth gemstone. Okay. Precious stones. Okay. An unfast. Okay. We'll have to look at maybe worth, worth a little study. Here, study Bible, if you want with the study Bible, it says could be rubies, could be crystals. It says both in mine. It says both of those? It says precious stones, it says crystal, and it says rubies. There you go. So translators are kind of in this like, well, here's our ballpark. Yeah, so there's our there's our ballpark estimate <laughs> as far as what that is. It, is. it does sound kind of strange in there. But it's, the point is, it's, the new, it's like the new heavens and the new earth. Is This is not a normal Jerusalem. This is the heavenly Jerusalem we've remade, right? That sort of thing. It then says, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness shall you shall be established. You shall not be far from oppression. Oh, wait, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall, fa shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. And so this idea is, is those who try to rise up. God's not stirring up strife. God's not trying to create problems here. Your salvation is secure. And the people that rise up against him and rise up against his people will, in the end, face, in this uh, poetic image, the sword. It's said a little bit differently in the New Testament, right, with I mean, the final judgment is the lake of fire that we see in, in Revelation, right? That's the final judgment. But it's not because God's wanting that. It's the people that are trying to intentionally oppose him. Um, I quote this all the time for my high school students. You've heard it from me in here. But it's good to remind ourselves from the great divorce, the C.S. Lewis, that those two types of people in the world, those to whom say to God, thy will be done, and those whom God says to, thy will be done, right? So in this case, when he raises up this weapon for its purpose, the ravager, um, it's for the people that are trying to rise up against God's people. And God says, all right, have it your way. You know, that's the that's the image that you're going to get. So their vindication from me is from God. So God's not the author of evil. God's not trying to create problems for them. And those that do will get their quote unquote comeuppance. Right. But it's not from us. It's from God.
God's the one that does those things. So it's kind of an interesting response. We get kind of a little mini New Jerusalem. We get this idea that everybody's at peace. We get the idea that things that were barren are now enlarging, right? Men, women are, that shouldn't be pregnant are now pregnant, right? The tents are growing. Enlarge your borders to the right and to the left. So God's people are going to go through all the nations. And then anybody that tries to oppose God's people are going to fail. And this is all in response to the suffering servant, right? It's pretty, pretty impressive passage. Um, but it's very poetic. It's, it's very, it's difficult because you can't really, it's not like you can go through it and get like all this systematic theology out of it, right? It's a little bit more of an image. It's a poetic image and it's a response of praise and song to God's love for his people. So you got to think more, think more like a psalm than think of like a letter, right? In terms of the style. This next chapter though, this one has a lot in it that is really, really dense theologically and really, really helpful for us. And I want to talk about a couple of things about how we look at scripture um, but also just the power of God in this. So let's look at 55. Um, and, and again, I'll spend some time on this. All right. So it says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Of course, when Jesus says things like, you know, I have, I'm living water, right? Come and drink. You know, you'll never thirst again. Stuff like that. You can see some of those images with Jesus. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. No, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that do, you did not know you shall run to you. Because the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Now, there's multiple interpretations of that passage. Like, what nation is this referring to? Is this the Babylonian exile? Is this Persia? And by the way, David, when it says him in here, this is the Davidic covenant. It's not necessarily David as an individual. This, can, this is still fulfilled in Christ because he is, the, uh, he is the descendant of David, and he fulfills the Davidic covenant as far as things go. So many nations, especially those unknown, will stream to Israel because of the deeds of the Lord. So the election of Israel is the very means of salvation for the nations. And so because Christ comes out of Israel is where we actually see this at its most great kind of fullest extent. Seek the Lord. This is where it really becomes the stuff that you know. Okay, so seek the Lord while he may be found. <coughs> Call upon him while he is near. And that's to all of us, by the way, right? To all of us. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's interesting to actually read that in context. We quote that passage a lot, but to actually see it in, in the text, it's helpful to kind of give you some of that. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And then another famous passage, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. All right. So this is where I'm going to write a little bit and just kind of talk about how we talk about Scripture. The idea that the word of the Lord will not return empty and that's going to accomplish everything it should accomplish. 
we say some things about scripture as evangelical Protestants and as Lutherans, that it's worth to kind of review a little bit about what we mean by this when we talk about the word of God. So I'm going to give you some vocab. If, forgive me, but it's just how I, I'm a teacher, so I just kind of do this. But it'll help us talk about the word of God. So I'm going to give you three I words, and I want to kind of parse these a little bit. So inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility. And this is good because you can, high school kids like this when I alliterate things because they're all eyes. You know what I'm saying? So you can remember like three eyes. That's It's just a helpful memory device. These actually are the terms we use, by the way. Okay. So these words mean different things, but they all kind of refer to the word of God. So when he says, when God himself says in, what is it? Verse 11. So shall my be word that goes out from me. It shall not return to me, me empty. It shall accomplish which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Okay, so when we talk about the word of God and we say that the scriptures are the word of God or that Jesus also is the word made flesh, right? We say those types of those type of things. We sometimes lose things in translation in terms of the word word. In Greek, it's logos, meaning like, honestly, it's related to the word logic, believe it or not. Logos, but it's this eternal wisdom of God. Think wisdom is another way of thinking about this. When we think about the word of God, these terms have to do with the character of God and the necessity, the authority, and the uh, effect of Scripture, okay? So for inspiration, this is the idea, this is where we get, in the word this translation is, this is the idea that all of Scripture is God-breathed, okay? Meaning that God, the words that God wanted to be written down were written down. Now, I want to be careful here. This is not, and I'll put this up here, this is a mistake that some, especially fundamentalist Christians make. This is not dictation theory. Here's what I mean. This is like God, when he writes through Paul in the New Testament, doesn't erase Paul's personality. Paul still sounds like Paul. You know what I mean? Or when you get into the old, in the Old Testament, Isaiah's poetry is different than the poetry we find in Amos, for example. Now, is it still God's word? Yes, but it's not like that person had their eyes closed and it was like auto writing, right? You know, so that's what some people think. Because then, So then here's what we believe then, is we believe that there's a dual source uh, authorship of scripture. It's a product of both man and God. Man is involved in the process, but God is the one who intends those words to be written down. So what God intended to be written down was written down. That's what we mean by inspiration. But if it is inspired of God, then we have to ask ourselves, what do we know about the character of God? We know that he's all-knowing, all-powerful, just, holy, merciful, simple, meaning he doesn't, he's, you can't break him up into parts, right? There's not contradictions in God. And he's consistent, he's reliable, he's truth. You can go all through these attributes of God. Then what does that mean his word is? All of, those all of those things. And so these terms are words that the church has used to describe what this means. So inerrancy is the idea that the Bible is without error, okay? And that means it's true in everything it touches. Okay? So when it talks about history... It reports it truly. Does that make sense? It's factual when it reports battle casualties in First Kings or something. It is true in what it touches. When it describes things, did you hear a poetic description of the water cycle there? Did you catch that? Yes. It's amazing because you don't think you'd find something like that in Scripture. But you actually get the water cycle. The rain and the snow come down from the heaven. They do not return there, but water the earth, causing it. So in other words, they don't, it doesn't disappear. It comes back. See that? It's very poetic but it's a way of describing kind of a water cycle, okay? 
But there's other passages. So when it talks about science, it's not a science book. You need to be careful. You can't read it like, you know, Huffton and Milton Biology, 12th edition. Okay, You can't read it like that. If you do that, then you've got another problem because then you're going to start trying to find things that may or may not be there, right? But when it touches things like this or when it talks about the creation of the world or when it talks about mankind or who we are as human beings, it's true. It's true in what it touches. That's what I mean by inerrancy. It's without error. It's not making mistakes. Now, I want to be careful here. And that when we say this, that doesn't mean our translations are without errors. That doesn't mean that every manuscript is without errors. This is only true in the original autographs. And that's very important because some people will get hung up on these things and you'll get an atheist or a non-believer that'll say, well, in this translation I'm reading, let's say, I'm just gonna say the 1984 NIV or whatever, I found a contradiction between these two, you know, these two passages. Okay, let's go back to the original manuscript to see if that's an actual contradiction or not. You get what I'm saying? Because like a lot of people read those or they read it like a modernist and expecting it to read like a newspaper report when it's poetry or it's apocalyptic literature or you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? So there's some mistakes there in interpretation. So infallibility, this means out, um, this means with, uh, without failure. This is the one that I think in Isaiah is the most accurate, right? Or true in what it teaches. Both, I, I actually hold to all of these, that it's the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. I actually believe that, okay? We as Lutherans like this term the most. We don't say inerrancy that much. That's more of a modern 20th century uh, term that comes out of American evangelicalism. In the 1970s, there's this thing called the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy, um, which says exactly what I just said, that the Bible's inerrant in the original manuscripts. That's, a, that's actually a statement. And a bunch of evangelicals in Chicago, places like Moody and Wheaton and other places, got together and made that statement. Now, Luther's actually, when you when you parse it, don't disagree with it. But we are more likely to use the word infallible, meaning that it, it will accomplish what it sets out to do, like this passage in Isaiah, where it says exactly, it shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed the thing for which I sent it. We would call that that it's infallible, that it is unable to fail. Does that make sense? It's, they're kind of like different emphasis on the syllable things. The reason we use this term is it shows that everything's a God thing. And it's, and it's about what, it's, what the purpose of the word of God is. The reason we don't use this term as much is some Christians use that term and read the Bible. Like kind of not necessarily a science textbook, but like it's a code. Or you can like cut up in all these parts. It's going to explain everything. And so some of the most rigorous uh, end times theologians will say, well, we know the Bible's an error and it doesn't make mistakes. And we know that Revelation is about the future. So that means the helicopters in this passage, I mean, the locusts in this passage are helicopters. And Gog and Magog are Russia and Iran. And you know, like they, they, you know what I'm saying? Sometimes this can lead to some abuses in approach in terms of end times and stuff like that. Um, or reading it like a science book when it's not a science book, even though it's true when it talks about those things. But it's not, it's, you can't read it, like I said, like it's Huffton and Milton Biology 12th edition. You just cannot read it that way. And if you expect it to speak that way, if you trust its authority, you're going to get some interesting things. And if you distrust its authority, it gives you an excuse to just reject it altogether. Both of those are wrong. Okay. Oddly, some American evangelicals and some fundamentalist atheists actually read the text the same way. They read it absolutely like 20th century modernists. It's just that one that takes it at its word and the other rejects it. But they're reading this, the way they interpret it is actually the same. It's bizarre. Um, we, we, it's, it's, it's just really, really odd. We actually, that's why we, because of that and those debates, we kind of don't use that term, but if you actually go to our teachings, we do hold to inerrancy. We do believe that the word of God doesn't make mistakes. 
We believe that the word of God is true in everything that it touches. We actually hold to inerrancy. We just kind of hesitate to get into those debates. Um, we kind of, we're, we're a little jinky on that. But this one, we are unapologetic, saying that the word of God is infallible, okay? that it's unfallible, infallible, that it will that it will accomplish what it's set out to do. It's true in what it teaches. It is without failure, um, like God says here in Isaiah 55. So you should know that we teach these words. I teach these to my classes all the time. Um, and really what this leads you to is if this is the word of God, if it's inerrant, if it's infallible, if it's inspired, and that's both the Old and the New Testaments, now how do you interpret it? Because that's the next question, right? If we establish this, and most of my classes are usually pretty good. Yeah, we're, we're good with you, Mr. Hayes. We got you. Then I say, okay, now how do we interpret it? When you have a Baptist saying baptism is only a symbol, and in the Lutheran tradition, we're saying that there's regeneration that goes on. Who's right? And how do you tell? Yeah, we're, we're right. We're, we're right, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> or for Roman Catholic, yeah, here's a greater example. And this is a little bit even more tricky. In Matthew, when we have the confession of Peter, right? And uh, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And the apostles say back to him, well, some say you're Elijah or the prophet or, you know, that sort of thing. He's like, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says back to him, blessed are you. Simon, son of Jonah, or Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. So Roman Catholic looks like that and says, see? Successor Peter. Yeah, see, see what I'm saying? They're interpreting scripture. And it says, upon this rock I will build my church, right? But. Yeah, there's a but, but I'm just saying, <laughs> so in other words, how do you, so I'm talking about, I'm being at devil's advocate. Right. Okay. So that's what it says. Of course, Peter later on gets, it, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, right? Because Peter says, not so, Lord, like literally just verses later, okay? The issue then becomes in that text, is it Peter himself or his confession of faith? Upon this rock, I will build my church. Does the this refer to Peter or does the this refer to the confession? We argue it's the confession of faith. Upon this, you are Peter upon this rock, because in the Greek, if you get into like all the grammar, it sounds like, the this refers to his confession of faith, not to Peter himself, the man. Does that make sense? But that's the debate. So I ask my students, though, that if we believe this is the word of God, because the Roman Catholics say, yeah, we believe it's the word of God. And because it's the word of God, that's why we have a pope. You see what I'm saying? You got it. So what's your hermeneutic? Yeah, go for it. Well, as I understood it from Pastor in one of the classes we had, maybe I misunderstood it, so you can correct me. Yeah, if you say uh, upon this, this rock, uh, you've got another problem because the rock in Greek is actually more like a pebble. It's not really a big thing. It's uh, it's, it's stable. Something strong. Right. It's stable, but it's still kind of a small thing. It's the confession that is the strength. Right. That's the yeah. Way. It's the faith because it's, it's in key. The other reason contextually, what does Jesus say to him? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, right. but my Father in heaven. So in other words, faith's been created in Peter, and that's what's giving him that strength in the first place. You know, I you, that, if I thought big, if I thought Roman Catholics were right, I'd be Roman Catholic. <laughs> okay, I don't think they're right. But my point is, is how do we interpret scripture? And so when you get from this, when God says this, the word of God is like this. And I was like, well, great. We all agree that the word of God is, you know, is, is not going to return to him empty. We all agree that the word of God is inspired. We agree that it's infallible. We agree that it's inerrant. But now all Christians who believe that have all these different interpretations. How do we know? Right. That's a really interesting debate. And it's a really interesting question to ask ourselves. What we call that, forgive me, so this is my theology geek of the day, okay? I, I, I did high school graduation yesterday, so my brain's still thinking like that. Um, but the word we use for that is hermeneutics. 
And that simply is oops, the science of interpretation. So in other words, this isn't just the Bible. Sorry, my handwriting, I'm trying to write fast. Um, the science of interpretation. What this means is, is when you approach the text, how do you interpret it? It's the same with all texts. So in other words, if I'm reading Shakespeare, what's my hermeneutic for interpreting Shakespeare, right? Makes sense. Or when I'm reading the Declaration of Independence, when I'm interpreting the U.S. Constitution, what's my hermeneutic? Is it a living, breathing document? Or should I go to the original meaning of that as they would have understood it in the 1780s, right? You know what I'm saying? That's your hermeneutic of interpretation. So this impacts us way more than we think it does, okay? So how do we know what our hermeneutic is in Scripture? So there's a few things that we say about this. So some of these seem obvious, but we need to repeat them sometimes. Um, one of the big principles we have is that Scripture interprets Scripture. So in other words, if you have a passage you don't understand, but another passage that explains it, then that's how it does that, right? Scripture interprets Scripture. We believe that the clear passages should interpret the unclear passages, which is really, really helpful sometimes because you'll get some really strange quotes or like some things that are called antilogona, which are like words that only appear one time. And you're like, okay, what do I do with that? Because there's no, you know what I'm saying? So the unclear passages are, there's a light from the clear passages. We also interpret the scriptures. One of our, this is very Lutheran of us, is we interpret the scriptures Christologically or as theologians of the cross. We try to find Jesus behind every rock and tree. Does that make sense? That's one of our distinctions, by the way, between some of our other Protestant evangelical brothers and sisters, is that we are very, very much, this is about Jesus. And so where you might get, say, a real strong dispensationalist will say, well, no, that's about Israel. That's applied to Jesus. We're like, well, the whole story is about Jesus. Well, yeah, but that has to do with Israel. We're like, well, isn't Jesus, you know, Israel in the person? Well, no. He's, you know, you see what I'm saying? That's where we start seeing some of those hermeneutical um, differences between us and the text. Um, we also interpret it according to genre. That's, in other words, poetry should be interpreted as poetry. So when we read Isaiah, we don't read Isaiah like we read Paul's letters, Right. We don't read the Psalms like we read the book of Genesis. You get what I'm saying? So in other words, we interpret according to genre. And then another thing that we sometimes talk about is historical, grammatical. You don't need to know all these terms. But that's the idea that what does the original languages say? What's the original grammar? What's the surrounding context? And how would that text have been understood in the culture of its time? That's the historical, grammatical approach, right? And then the last thing that I add on this, there's a whole thing that goes into this. See, when, when we read a study Bible, it takes some work. It's a, it's took like a decade to put together because we've gone through all this, you know, all this process. Um, the other thing about that is uh, uh, what's the consensus of the church? So like, you know, what do our confessions say? What do the church fathers say? What do the creeds say? Now, that's not the same level as scripture, of course, but it's the history of the church working with these texts. Right. So in other words, if, if when Christ in John promises that the Holy Spirit's going to guide his disciples into all truth, if the church universal, the true church Catholic with a small c, says the same thing about some text throughout time and space and culture and geography, I'm probably going to defer to their better judgment. Do you know what I'm saying on that? I just, and um, it's, you know, scripture is not, uh, there's another passage, scripture is not given to any private interpretation. It's not like you can just make up, you know, what you want, but that is actually the public it's the, the church's book, not an individual's book, but the church's book. And so if I look at, if I'm in 2021, I was like, well, we know better now. That immediately for me, warning bells are going off. Because I'm like, did the Holy Spirit lie for 2,000 years? You see what I'm saying on this? And it's very key for us in the Reformation, too. Like with Luther, Luther was very much, we, this is nothing new. Right? The Augsburg Confession. We're just teaching this. All the church fathers agree with us on this. 
This is nothing new. We're just calling us back to the sources here. That's one of the key claims of the Reformation is that this is nothing new. It's the Restorationist or the uh, the Radical Reformation that makes that claim that everything is so bad that we got to blow up the whole system. You know what I mean? Rather than reform it, we got to blow the whole thing up and start from ground zero. Um, in the 1800s in America, in particular, that becomes a big thing. There's a reason why Jehovah's Witnesses, Latter Day Saints. Seventh-day Adventists, Disciples of Christ, you can go on and on and on. Not all of those are equal, by the way. Some are more orthodox than others, right? But they all show up in the 19th century in America. Have you ever asked why? You know what I'm saying? What's going on? Well, um, it's individual rights, individual liberty, individual soul liberty. Um, there's this idea of manifest destiny, and America is going to like put God's kingdom on earth. And so, oh, there's new revelation now, you know, because we're, you know, there's we're the chosen people, and you can see how that kind of works out. Hence, Latter Day Saints, right? If you think what that means, or Jehovah's Witnesses. And so, when I hear those sort of things, and even Christians who are Orthodox, I'm like, when you're teaching that stuff, you're teaching about the end times, and nobody ever said anything like that until the 1800s. else is going on. It doesn't mean that there can't be new, uh, richer understandings or that there can't be any development. I mean, the, the joke I give people all the time is the Bible has nothing to say about human cloning. That did not exist, right? So we as the church have to adapt doctrinally and ethically and think about human cloning, okay? It just does not have that in the text. So it doesn't mean that there's never any development in doctrine, right? But it does mean that there's a weight of orthodoxy, I mean that with a small o, and a weight of Catholicity that you better be pretty confident if you're going to start tearing down fences for no reason. That's a G.K. Chesterton quote. Before you tear down a fence, first figure out why it was there in the first place. <laughs> I mean, you know what I'm saying? So we, we assume that just because it's a barrier, it's preventing us from doing something that's automatically bad. When that's not necessarily true. Okay, so that's just, just some stuff to think about with this. But I want to add, we, we have five minutes. But anyways, that's my aside scripture. I just want to hand because that's in here. This idea that the word of God will accomplish everything it's for. What do we teach on the word of God? I wanted to just mention that as we sometimes forget to say this. So, and it's also, I, I mean, I tell my high school kids all this. I get them all the time. This is a Christian school immemorial problem. You know, how do you treat the word of God? Well, it's like a textbook. No, it's not your textbook. It's just textbook. You know what I'm saying? So I said, do you treat it well? You know, when you, so they actually are getting better. You know, I now have a whole stack of Bibles over there, but they're extras. But like they'll say things like, okay, Mr. Hayes, I'm going to put it in my backpack now so it doesn't look like I'm just throwing it on the floor, you know, because <laughs> I'm getting out. It's like, it, what, what, do you, what do you actually have here? Think about it for a second. Now, for the kids that don't know what they believe, that's different, right? But for those who are raised in our church or who are Roman Catholic or Baptist, whatever that I have here, I'm like, what is this? You know, it's not just words on a page, okay? This is the king of the universe talking to you. So how are you going to treat that letter? And so then they, they, they kind of talk through that. But anyways, that's it's something that I that I emphasize. And we are as a culture, unfortunately, and as a church, really, we should, you know, judgment starts in the house of God first. OK, we are becoming biblically illiterate. And so it's important for us to remember these things every once in a while, remind ourselves of how powerful the word of God actually is and how important it actually is. What I want to end on, though, is this beautiful poetic uh, passage Whoop. As, I, as I talk about treating the Bible well, and I drop mine um, about this poetic passage in Isaiah 55 of the my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are, not higher than, are higher than your thoughts. So again, this is the main one. Seek the Lord while he may be found. This is starting in verse six in chapter 55. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I want to I, I want to end on that quote because it shows God's eternal knowledge. It shows that God is so much beyond what we would possibly imagine. The more we study the universe, do you remember, um, I think it was two months ago, and I know some of you, because you gave me some feedback on this, when I showed you that astronomy video, do you remember this, about how, how, God, how huge the universe is, how like the earth is tiny compared to the sun, but the sun is tiny compared to this star, and that star is tiny compared to this star, right? And then that's not even counting, counting the distances involved. And God says, my thoughts are higher than that compared to our thoughts. And we should really be in awe of that kind of knowledge. And so the way I like to say this is the same God who knows the name of 10 to the 10 to the whatever amount of stars knows the name of all those. He calls them all by name, also knows the head on every person's, all the hairs on your heads are numbered, and he knows when a, a sparrow falls. Try to understand that for just a second, that the God of the universe has such intimate knowledge of you and me that he knows every hair on your head, knows his creation so well that a little sparrow gets eaten by a cat, and he knows. And he knows every star and calls every star at 10 to whatever power by name. That's the God we're talking about that wants to have compassion on us. So then what are we doing? You know, that's just, so what are we going to do with that knowledge, right? How are we going to live our lives in response to that? And he's creating, you know, that, talk about a merciful God. It's not like he needs us, if that, <laughs> but he wants us anyways. So I love that. I, I think having that perspective of how big God is and how small we are shows us how shows us how valuable we really are. Then that that God would actually go to the cross, right? That's a pretty amazing thought to think that way. So I, I love that in Isaiah. My thoughts are not higher are higher than yours, and we can use theological terms to describe that. That God is infinite. That He's uns, uncircumscribable. You can't measure Him with a with a yardstick, right? That He's immeasurable. But if you think about those terms, we're not really even saying anything. What we're saying is what he's not. Yeah. Right? Right? Those are negative terms. He is invisible. He is immortal. He is uncircumscribable. Those are all negative terms because this is so beyond what we can what we can understand. We use negative terms to say what God is not in order to try to say what he is. <laughs> if that gives you any indication, even in the way we use our language, of how limited we are when we talk about a God who is really that supreme and that high. So wonderful passage in Isaiah. I, it's one of those that I, I recommend if there's passages to memorize, that whole section from like Isaiah 55, 6 through the end of that chapter. Um, some of those are in hymns too. Like the rocks and the hills will break forth from uh, singing. The trees and the fields will clap their hands. Like this is brought into hymns and in praise songs and stuff like that. So it, like Psalm 55, there's a, just like Psalm 53, there are sections of text here where I recommend Christians memorize them or at least know where they are very intimately because they're very, very powerful in that way. And it's those promises are very real. All right, any comments, questions? We got like one minute. Anyways, this is actually good timing. Yeah, I was thinking while we were going through this, well, that sounds, when you start talking about the immensity of everything, well, that sounds like hyperbole. And then I'm thinking, what are you gonna put in there? Yeah. Are, what are you gonna substitute for it? And maybe it is hyperbole. We don't have anything else to describe it. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Uh, by God, by definition, can't be described hyperbolically because God's beyond language, right? Yeah. So hyperbole can't apply to God because God is beyond hyperbole. Yeah. And now you're in a real weird. <laughs> like that. Honestly, right? Because yes, he's beyond our language. Right. So how can he be? How can you be hyperbolic when talking about an infinite God? Right. You can't. You can't say anything that is beyond him. So hyperbole does not describe. You can't describe God in hyperbolic language because right. God is beyond hyperbolic language. Get your own dirt. 
Yeah, it's kind of, <laughs> we're about at that point, right? And it's weird, to, but it's, I think it's good that we think that way sometimes, like bend our brains a little bit, make our brains hurt. Um, <laughs> the other one that I like there too, with God, you know, if he's beyond the space-time continuum, right? Phrases like once upon a time, there was a time where there was no time. Uh-huh. You know, it's good to think that way sometimes, though, because it m makes you realize your sense of place, right? Yeah, yeah. And it, it gives you a sense of humility. And then it also gives you a sense of the immensity of God's promises. So like when, you know, you know, I was talking, you know, with graduations, that's one of the reasons I said what I said at the end is that's the God, you know what I mean, that wants you. That's the God. Yes. And so remember that first. You can worry about the change in your lives and all the struggles you have. That's fine. I'm not saying don't worry about those things. But what's your foundation? And it's this, Right. It's these promises that we find. It's the infallible word of God, because God himself is infallible and unable to fail. Yeah, go when I hear the, the scientists talking about our universe is expanding, that implies that there's an edge somewhere. Mm -hmm. But my mind can't grasp, how could there be an edge? Right. Where, there, there can't be. It's infinite. And my mind can't go that far. Right. Yeah. And that's, and again, and, but God says he's beyond that. That's what's yes. so amazing about this. Yes. As the heavens are higher than the earth, right? Higher. So in other words, it's not, we've got a limit here. You know what I'm saying? It's unlimited. That's how how much his thoughts are. In fact, even in heaven, you know, this is all end on this. This may last, and we'll say the blessing. Um, if you think about this, it's kind of interesting. One of the things we teach is that, and Pastor said this in his sermon this morning, is union with Christ. Right? That we we speak of three things in salvation. It's called the order salatis, order of salvation. We speak about speak about justification when we're declared not guilty. Right? We speak of sanctification, being made more holy. Right? We're being conformed to the image of Christ. And then we also speak of glorification. Some people even call it deification. That doesn't mean we become gods into ourselves, but it means we're united so intimately with God that we're transformed, right? Um, the way it's described often is like iron in fire. It heats up, takes on some of the properties. It's glowing with the, it's not the fire itself, but it's united in such a way that it's completely transformed, right? That's a really good image of that. So that glorification idea, that union with Christ, that mystical union, that's the goal. But even there, once we experience that, there's going to be some of God that, I mean, that's, we would take forever to even ex understand this union idea. What about the stuff that you can't even understand? Even then, you know what I'm saying? How unlimited that actually is. It's really impossible for us to understand. That's why you get those, those wonderful passages in Paul, you know, eye is not seen or tongue has confessed the glories of those, you know I mean? He just, you just cannot express this. The Eastern Orthodox church will say something like, God's uh, God's essence can never be known because you can never truly know his essence, who he is by nature completely. You just cannot know that fully. But his energies that he uses to create and interact with all of humanity, we can know those, right? So what do we do know? So God's essence can be unknowable. That's why I use infinite, invisible, and those kind of words. But his energies, the just, loving, merciful God that we interact with, we can know that and be a part of ultimately in the new creation. So I think that's a great, I, I like thinking that way. My kids are showing up here, so let's say the blessing. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org and make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.